Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is the wonderful, multi-talented Jenny Blackford. Jenny's poems and stories have been published in Australian Poetry Journal, Cosmos Magazine, Westerly, the New South Wales School Magazine, and so much more. Uh, Pitt, Pitt Street Poetry has published her cat poems, The Duties of a Cat, Chicken Poems, The Loyalty of Chickens. Um, there's so much more than cat and chicken poems too, although cat and chicken poems are probably um, sufficient, really. Um, her historical novella set in the 5th century BC Athens in Delphi, The Priestess and the Slave, was published by Hadley Ryle Books in 2009. Um, she was part of a collective that published the award-winning fanzine Australian Science Fiction Review. She's been a reviewer for New York Review of Science Fiction, The Age, Cosmos, and G. She's been an Aurelius Fantasy Judge and a judge for the World Fantasy Awards and the Conflict Short, Short, Short Story Competition and the Australian Shadows Awards and a, and a few others I know of too. Um, she's secretary on the committee of the Newcastle Writers Festival, which I'm sure um, at the moment she's knee deep in. <laughs> um, she has a classics degree. She's worked at IBM as a systems engineer and she's even helped run a small press publisher, Ebony Books. And that is just a sampling. Jenny, welcome. <laughs> Good morning. So we've been friends a long time now, and I, I've often been amazed at the variety of your publications and shortlists. Uh, but there are a lot of things you've done, which I didn't know until I looked up your bio for this interview. You're quite the polymath, aren't you? Yeah, I can't quite help myself. Um, I started out with classics, um, Latin through high school, as well as French and um, then um, Greek at university as well as the Latin. And really with classics, you have to be a polymath across everything that happened um, from about 800 BC through to 50 AD. So anything from um, weaving um, public health, who assassinated which leader, and uh, what weapons they used, as well as the actual literature and the language. Mm. So it almost leads into the kind of writing career that you've had to, you know, cover so many different different types of genres and diff different approaches. That's true. Um, also, the thing is, I've always liked to read everything. I mean, I, I have a particular soft spot for speculative fiction, including everything from very hard science fiction through um, fantasy set in the modern world right through to fantasy set um, at the time of the Epic of Gilgamesh or, um, and poetry of all descriptions, for kids, for grown-ups, deadly serious, very funny, mm. everything from um, W.B. Yeats to, um, to Lear. Mm. Yes, and your work reflects that, sometimes doing both at the same time, being deadly serious and funny, which is quite the, <laughs> it's quite the trick. <laughs> but it's what life's like, isn't it? I Absolutely. mean, life really is deadly serious and incredibly funny and and unless you can appreciate the funny the deadly serious is just so deeply and desperately depressing yeah i i absolutely agree i think you somehow you have to try and um and keep smiling through 
through everything. Um, so before we begin talking too much more, um, can I just ask you to read us a little bit from your latest book, The Girl in the Mirror? I'll read from the very beginning, which is in the voice of Clarissa, a girl living in an unnamed Australian city in the 1890s. Bertie's ghost raced down the stairs again, laughing. Clarissa heard, but she just kept on working at her horrid embroidery, all things bright and beautiful. The harder she tried to get it right, the more like the more the sheep that she was sewing under the words looked like a large woolly rat. Aunt Lily would sneer at her work again. Sigh. Clarissa's older brother Alfred learnt Latin and natural science at a private school for boys, but Aunt Lily said that it was a wicked waste educating girls. She had always said, your duty girl is to marry and produce sons for the British Empire, just like a dear Queen Victoria. Over my dead body, thought Clarissa. She shuddered at the idea of Aunt Lily's favourite, the doctor's pale, plump son with his wet, red lips. Bertie's ghost clattered back up the stairs in his big, clompy boots. Hush, Bertie, Clarissa said quietly. Poor mother is trying to sleep. She wasn't quite sure whether mother could hear Bertie, but mother had been in decline ever since Bertie and the twins had died of whooping cough two years before. With mother indisposed, as they said, Aunt Lily ran the house like a prison. With another sigh, Clarissa looked out of the window at the young rose gum that father had planted in the backyard after Bertie's funeral. The new leaves shone red in the late spring sunshine. The footsteps trailed off. No one but Clarissa and maybe her mother ever heard Bertie. That was probably lucky, Clarissa thought. Heaven only knew what Aunt Lily would do if she heard him, have the house exercised or maybe fumigated. Whatever it was, dear dead Bertie wouldn't like it. So that was chapter one. Hmm. Now, I, I, I just love the, the whole concept of the book, this idea of these two girls in the same place with different time frames that are sort of paralleling each other and influencing what happens in each other's time frames. Did, did you begin with that concept or, or with the characters? How did the book come about? Actually, I did begin with the concept. Um, it, it actually started with a short story in the New South Wales School Magazine, that wonderful old institution, uh, that was published back in 2005. I, I lived in a decaying terrace house down in Melbourne at the time and we had some very long stairs to get between the downstairs and the upstairs and they creaked a lot and I've always felt mirrors were rather eerie so the idea that a girl from the 1890s might be communicating through the mirror with a modern girl just seemed like a strong possibility 
It's a, it, there is something kind of oddly modern about it as well, though, even though it's an old house and it's kind of a classic trope, it's um, maybe it's just like a quantum entanglement, really. <laughs> it seems very somehow strangely scientific to me for a fantasy. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is a little. And um, you, if people read the book very carefully, they'll find that there's very specific circumstances under which the communication through the mirror can happen. But um, I won't give any more clues about that. Yes, I won't ask you to give too much away. And if I do ask you a question that <laughs> seems to veer you into spoilers, just just fob it off. Um, but did you begin... Oh, that's actually not... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that that's actually not a spoiler. That's more a secret that's there for people who read the book a second time thinking, hmm... Why can they talk sometimes but not others? Ah, the challenge. So did you begin yes. thinking you'd write a middle grade book? Was there a you know, was that the audience that the story was for? Or is that a particular, um, I guess, a particular age group that you were writing with in mind? When I wrote the original short story, that was for the um, New South Wales School magazine. I wrote it with them in mind um, because they're a, a a wonderful publication, and uh, their work goes um, from about um, nine-year-olds to about 12-year-olds. So I was always going to be within that range. And the book grew organically out of the short story. Uh, it, it took a while. It's gone through several reinventions at different lengths, but I'm absolutely delighted that Christmas Press in Armadale and particularly their um, imprint Eagle Books, which does adventure stories, uh, loved the um, 30,000 word incarnation of the short story. So it's the, it's the little short story that grew. <laughs> so your poems I've noticed also sometimes veer into the speculative too. Um, what draws you to speculative fiction or speculative poetry? Oh, there's an interesting question. Um, partly that speculative literature is, although the, the, the world of speculative literature with all of its possibilities, quantum entanglement and elves and ghosts and what might happen in the mirror, is so much more interesting than doing the washing up every day and remembering to do up your shoelaces. It, it's it's always uh, appealed to me from from the days of fairy tales, which are of course speculative literature, onwards. And if you look at um, all the great ancient literature, uh, if if it wasn't considered um, great classics. They would all be called speculative literature. I mean, look at Beowulf fighting Grendel and Grendel's mother, who are, are, are amazing um, generation of monsters, two generations of monsters, I should say. And heaven even knows about Grendel's father. You don't hear a lot about him. Um, but Homer, the, um, the Trojan Wars and so forth, might have been fought 
on the ground by human beings, but it was certainly fought on Olympus by different factions of the gods. And so many of the um, apparent humans fighting had um, either uh, deities as fathers or had something um, weirdly speculative in their general bloodline and um, equipment. The gods were always giving people, I mean, ever since um, the dawn of time, the gods have given people weapons and abilities. Yes. Fairy tales, there are very few fairy tales that don't involve a little bit of magic, and the fairy tales that don't involve any magic are are pretty boring. Mm. I can't even think of any offhand. No, I can't either. And and the monsters are always good. I mean, it's always good. You've got a good monster too. Oh, the, if you don't have a good monster, there's no point writing anything, mm. if, even if it's kitchen sink drama. Yes. So did you do much research for the book to get, at least to get Clarissa right? I, yeah, look, I've read in that era for a very, very long time and, and i researched everything that I could um, uh, find definitively. Um, A a lot of it, I have to admit, is based on what my grandmother, who was born in the very early 1900s, told me about her parents. Um, She came out from Stockport, Cheshire, on a ship from... uh, yeah, from Stockport, Cheshire, coming through to Australia, well, Liverpool, I think the ship went from. And she's, to a dying day, she remembered the terrible storm near India. I think life really was so different, even in the time of um, people not very far distant from us genealogically. And her mother lived in a completely different world where ankles were um, appallingly improper and um, everybody wore red flannel petticoats. Yes, I love Clarissa. I love Clarissa's um, it kind of almost excitement at Maddie, at the fact that Maddie has such a scandalously short skirt. <laughs> yes. Yes, well... My grandmother um, did always consider my skirt scandalously short. And and then when um, um, there were long hippie dresses, they weren't right either. You could never you could never get anything quite right. Yes, but respectability this... is a very difficult thing to pursue for a child. But the the girls are quite open to one another, aren't they? They they tend to. Um open each other's worlds in many ways. There's a quite a, um, they impact on each other in quite positive ways. What, well, certainly what I wanted, what I imagine um, very many girls of that age want is somebody that they can really talk to without fear and can learn from and, um, and help in turn. We all want to learn and help mm. yeah for sure so um fiona mcdonald's ink illustrations are quite 
quite lovely too. Uh, as I mentioned in my review, I'm particularly fond of the um, the little the little redbacks on the bottoms of the pages. Um, did you have a hand in getting her involved, or was that a surprise for you? That was a total surprise. Um, my contract mentioned um, internal illustrations, but I had no idea that as well as you know, I, I thought maybe two, three full-page um, pictures. I didn't realise there'd be so many gorgeous pictures and I had no idea that there was going to be a red book on every page and um, the the gorgeous um, chapter headings with a different little, um, well, almost icon you'd call it, for whether it was Maddie or Clarissa. And um, the the... Redbacks on the title page, three savage-looking redbacks. And I, I particularly love the, the, the very front page where it's got a this book belongs to all, all uh, tangled in spider webs and a redback hanging off the two and a line for the owner to write his or her name on. I think that's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 a lovely, uh, actually a lovely artifact book, uh, and and uh, I'll I'll say this again at the end of our um at the end of our chat, but it, ma- it makes a terrific gift. Uh, I suspect they have them at McLean's if anybody local wants to grab a copy. Um, sorry, I, I missed um you're you're breaking up through a lot of that. I'm oh, sorry. Can yes, you hopefully can you it won't. that? Yes, hopefully it won't break up in the recording. Um, so I was just mentioning that uh, the book is so is so nice looking as an artifact that it makes a terrific gift. And I was hoping that maybe um, suspecting that McLean's would have a copy if there's anybody local listening. Look, McLean's definitely have copies. Mm-hmm. There, there should be copies in other bookstores, though. Um, I haven't gone and um, done a vanity check for who is stocking it at the moment. Any any bookstore can um, get it through the distributor Pariba, but McLean certainly um, have a good stock of copies. And, look, it, it is just a very nice little artefact to hold in the hand. And um, Eagle Books did a beautiful job. I, I love Fiona MacDonald's artwork. Um, and Betty Alvarez's editing was excellent. I, I, I can't speak too highly of them as a publisher. Mm. Now, I love all your work. Um, and I find as a reader that it doesn't, I, I don't feel that some of your work is for a different audience to me. I feel like it could all be read by adults or children or, um, you know, speculative fiction fans. It it's kind of uh, blurs all the genres. Um, but do you find that you've got different streams of fans, like different, uh, almost as if you had a different identity for different genres, uh, you know, your children fans, your adult fans, your poetry fans? That's a very good question. And I'm thinking as I speak, there, there would be people who will be reading one sort of thing that I write and nothing else. Uh, so, for example, the American science fiction poets in the uh, oh, Science Fiction and Fantasy um, Poetry Association will really only see my spec my, my most hardcore fic poetry. Um, 
people from the ages of, say, 8 to 12 will be reading both my poetry and my prose in the school magazine where both of them are represented fairly regularly, for which I'm extremely grateful. Um, some people will only know me as an Australian spec fic writer who writes um, somewhat left of centre, somewhat odd, mythically um, flavoured short stories that they see now and then. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, that the girl in the mirror comes to a, a, a new audience, hopefully a new audience who will vaguely recognise my name from seeing it in the school magazine, which goes to many, many um, young people in schools every month. So I, I think what I'm saying is yes and no. <laughs> Yes, and I can understand that. I because because your poetry, of course, it, it, certainly your two books. I've seen you read it to younger listeners, and I've seen you read it to adult listeners, and the response is positive in both instances. I don't think it's um it's limited. I'm extremely pleased about that. I mean, part of it is that I don't know that I've ever actually grown up, so I don't personally try to write for children or try to write for adults. There's some themes that are just so um, sad that, that you really think, well, this, this is really going to go for adults. So particularly poems about dementia really um, are things that most children don't need to know about. Some, some do need to have... Um, a, a literary way of understanding um, a, a way through the sorrow um, and understanding that other people have also felt that sort of pain watching a loved one sink into dementia. Um, but, but, yes, when I start writing a poem, I, I don't think I am writing this for kids or I'm writing this for adults. And there's certainly stories that I've started for adults that I've decided really this has been much better for an 11-year-old, so I've gone and revised it and made it more fun. Because stories for kids can be a lot more fun than stories for adults. Kids have more imagination. Um, at yes, but yes, more fun. One thing I have noticed is it's certainly everything I've read, there has somewhere been a cat. Is there, I know you're not a crazy cat lady. I know you only have one cat, but um, there's always seems to be a cat lurking somewhere, but I can't recall. I should have gone back and checked. Is there a cat in this book anywhere? There is not a cat in The Girl in the Mirror. Huh. And that's that's clearly a deficit that um, needs to be remedied if I ever write a sequel. <laughs> that's right. You'll have I to... think they, they both need a cat, preferably a ghost cat. <laughs> That's right. The cat has to be good. It has to be a good cat and preferably a ghost cat. Yes. I, I like it. I think you're, you've got something going here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, 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 I'd really, um, yes, yes. I, I, I think Maddie would enjoy having a ghost cat walking up the stairs after Bertie. <laughs> yes. Now, um, I, 
quite quietly though. So I don't know how you'd manage a ghost cat because living cats are kind of ghost-like sometimes at least. Um, but one of the things I did love also, I mean, I loved a lot about this book, but the botanic quality of the work. Um, Maddie in the garden is very precise as she goes through the different plants. Um, and it's, uh, it's really a joy to read it. Do you, were you inspired by your own garden? I have always loved plants. And um, as a, when I was young, my grandmother taught me quite a lot about plants, much of which I found out was totally incorrect as I got older. Um, I, I am always inspired by seeing gardens. My, my own garden always looks to me like a, a to-do list. So it's, it's hard for me to put on my different set of eyes and see the garden as um, a, a wonderful thing and not just a, oh, I must cut that back and, oh, I must plant that thing there and, oh, I need to fertilise that. The uh, leaves are dark green and the veins are yellow. I can't remember what deficiency that is. I think it might be boron, but... Um, then I have to look up what it's a deficiency of. So the, so the garden is really a great big to-do list for me, but I do love it. I, I love it very much, and the garden is far too big, and I get out there as often as I possibly can. And I think plants are some of the most wonderful things. I mean, we wouldn't be alive without plants. There wouldn't be enough oxygen in the air for a start. It was plants that made the earth habitable for um, animals in the first place. Mm. Yes. So um, is there a new work in progress? Have you got something on the cards or are you busy promoting this and, uh, and many other things? I'm, my current uh, work in progress is a, Another story, uh, another novel based on a story published in the school magazine about a magic circus, a circus which just happens to involve uh, two centaurs and um, a dragon and a water nymph and a little girl who is drawn into the circus and um, is the first person for maybe 80 years to see the magical performers for what they really are. Mm. The, the uh, short story version was called The Dragon in the Tent, which I think is possibly going to be the novel title as well. Wonderful. Is this a middle grade as well? It will be middle grade, yes. Fantastic. So... Yes. Uh... Oh, you can put your cat in this one. There's, there's got to be a cat in this one. Actually, that that is the gap in the manuscript. Thank you, Maggie. I, I will go. I will go forward and put a cat into the um, the dragon in the tent. Fantastic! You can name it Maggie. <laughs> Maggie the Margie. <laughs> I will do that. Maggie the Moggy. That has to be the name. You're quite right. I'm I'm actually writing that down now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
Wonderful. I, Jenny, that is all we have time for today. But um, before we finish off, just um, tell me where readers can go to find out more about you and The Girl in the Mirror. And um, if they're not local, if they are local, get over to McLean's on Beaumont Street because they have copies and this is a fabulous gift. But if they're not local, where can they find you? Um, my website is www.jennyblackford.com where they can find out more about me. Uh, the publishers are Eagle Books, um, who are based in Armadale. They have distribution um, through Peribo, who can um, get the book to any bookstore in Australia with no problem at all. It is also available online and it's available um, by mail order through the Armadale, um, wonderful Armadale toy shop, um, Granny Fee's Toy Cupboard, who um, act as an online distributor for Eagle Books and Christmas Press. And thank you so much, Maggie. This has been a most enjoyable interview. Thank, thank you so much. And as this is the last interview of the year, listeners, have a terrific holiday break. Stay safe and see you in the next decade. Bye for now.